I hope you'll allow me a personal story. So Lois and I, when we uh, knew we were called here, uh, we began to look for a home, and that was going to be difficult because we already owned a home that would need to sell, and we wouldn't know when it would sell, and then the, the money from the home, how would, we, how would we, you know, have that in time to get another home, and, and uh, we spent a lot of time praying about that, thinking about that, and, and we spent a little bit of time kind of dreaming about the kind of house that we would like to have, um, and we, we probably, we really didn't hope to have, didn't think maybe we could probably have the kind of house that we do have, which would have been the kind of house we dreamed about since we, for many years. But on October 1st, we were driving down this country road, on Vermin Road, and, and uh, there was this little farmhouse there, and I said, wow, look at that, that's a, that's a John Sloan house, a favorite artist of mine, kind of painted houses that look like that. And this was an impeccably restored little farmhouse and in a beautiful, beautiful setting on a beautiful October night. And uh, I said, let's, let's look at that. And she says, we're not going to look at that. You, you can't fix stuff up. And it's a farmhouse. I said, well, look at the driveway. It looks like somebody has really fixed it up. And indeed they had. We walked through and it was just an adorable home that had been very carefully restored. And, and, uh, and God, uh, and, and so we, as we walked through, we, we met the owner. His name, he's, uh, he's a local attorney. His name is Charles Perlos. And, and we kind of hit it off and um, we appreciated what he'd done. And I said to him, would you, you know, could we make an offer contingent on the sale of our house? And he immediately agreed. After we were done that day, he actually pulled the house off the market, didn't take any other offers, and said over and over again, he said, Ken, relax, I'm saving it for you, you know, and, and I would call him and check every once in a while, and um, so he, he sold us his house, and we have a friendship, and one of the things that I uh, have really honestly thought about and dreamed about a lot would be that maybe Charles would come and be our guest, and Charles Perlis is our guest today. Charles, if you'd just say hi, and let's thank him for, and daughter Lindy, Next to Charles. Charles, thank you so much publicly for what you did. You blessed this whole church and you blessed us. Yeah. He wouldn't mind if you prayed for him. He's had some health things and please remember him in prayer. Would you put his name down and just remember him in prayer that he would be in robust good health? That would mean a lot. And uh, I think we have a lifelong friend in Charles and we're just super grateful to have him here today. I wrote a little book called Sunset on Summer, and in the book, one of the little essays is about the best place to do theology, and if you're my friend, I can read from my book to you, right? So let me just read this, a, a, a little story from my book. I started to study theology at Moody Bible Institute in the fall of 1977. After a few distractions, I was awarded a master's degree from Moody in the spring of 2006. The fellowship, uh, the teaching, the quiet enjoyment of the library, the experience of the city of Chicago were, were just fond memories. They're just fond memories to me now. But have you ever considered uh, though, that the formal theological institutions are not the primary place God intends for people to learn about himself. There is no institution on earth that's better equipped as a place of learning than the simplest Christian home. There are no professional teachers or no professors who can have the impact that a father or a mother can have on a child in a simple Christian home. The idea that the primary place to learn theology is in the high-arched halls of academia, it didn't come from the Bible or, or any place. Any place is a good place to learn theology, including theological institutions. But the primary place that God intends for us to learn about God, theology, 
is at our father's side. It's at our mother's feet. It's in our grandma's lap. Maybe the best context for learning God's truth is beside a generous piece of your grandmother's apple pie, hot from the oven, cooled by homemade vanilla ice cream, maybe drizzled with caramel. Can I get an amen on that? According to Psalm 78, and according to our text today, Deuteronomy 6, home is the best place there is to learn about God. Home is where theology really sticks to your ribs. And that's why we're committed to teaching our children about God at home and our grandchildren. Now, I wrote this a while ago, so you're, you're going to notice this. Last Thursday night, we, Lois and I were lying in bed, and our six-year-old Hope joined us for a few minutes. Suddenly, she pops up out of our bed, and she says, Hey, Dad, you know what I'm going to eat tomorrow? I said, No, Hopi, what are you going to eat tomorrow? She said, Tomorrow, I'm going to eat fries. I said, Why are you going to eat fries tomorrow? Then she flashed me a smile, showing two missing teeth, and she said, with perfect timing and specific emphasis, I'm going to eat fries tomorrow, because tomorrow is Friday. <laughs> Smart girl, that hope. Now listen, the greatest teacher that ever graced the earth, the greatest teacher who ever walked on this earth, he changed the whole world by training a dozen men as they walked the lakeshore and camped in the mountains and went fishing and sailed the Galilee and jostled through the city, rubbing shoulders with raw humanity. And that's the way it is at home. Learning just kind of slips up on you when you're not paying attention. And before you know it, you have in your heart a lesson you will never forget. There are so many good things about home, and one of them is that home is a great place for the most important lessons in life, and that's why we should learn together at home every day. And that's essentially what Moses, as you know in our text, that we're studying as a church through a section of Deuteronomy 6, and it's the section where Moses, remember they went to the promised land that God promised them, but because of their fa a lack of faith and because of their disobedience, they couldn't go in. A generation later, he brings them back and he restates the law again, and Moses is going to give three long talks, three discourses, much longer than the one you're going to hear from me today. The first one was a, a discourse looking back. He wanted the people to remember, and he did this gently, but he wanted to remember their, their failure and, their, and their, their, their inability to keep the promises of God and then go into the promised land. And then there was this, the central discourse in the middle was just to go over God's law again. Maybe a better way to say that would be, the one who made you knows how you work best. And he gave you a set of instructions, if you will. That's part of what God's law does. It does more than that, and we'll talk about that a bit. But, but Moses is going to say this. I want you to go in. God wants you to go in, and he wants you to have this kind of ideal land and this ideal people. And, and families that, you know, love God and, and that are filled with love and joy and kindness and, and peace. I want you to have that. And this is the way that works, God's law. And the central discourse was a reiteration of God's law. And the final one, which reads in a very powerful way, his last discourse is a series of just lyrical, beautiful, poetic promises, along with some very, very dark warnings if you disobey God. People that have studied Deuteronomy come to deeply appreciate it. Now, this past week, you probably, how many of you watched Billy Graham's uh, funeral? Did you watch that? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, I, I just want to recommend that you go on uh, Facebook, go back, look it up, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It'll be archived there. Watch Billy Graham's uh, memorial service there. 
But one of the things I noticed was, you know, they, all of, the, all of uh, Billy and Ruth Graham's children spoke at the memorial service. All of them spoke briefly. And there's two things that I noticed that, from what the children of Billy Graham said. Remember how here we're talking about how do we raise kids that have a lifelong love for God? And some of you are going to say right now, they're going to go, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a little bit afraid, you know, that things aren't going too well. Well, we have encouraging words for you too. And these are some of them. Notice Billy Graham, who's, I think by anybody's estimation, just a fine evangelical leader that has died, you know, faithful and went home to be with the Lord. All of his children stood up, and, and this is one of the things I noticed. Every one of his children had a love in their heart for God. Every one of them did. Here's the other thing I noticed, and that is all of them also gave a testimony of times of failure, and, and a number of them, even significant times where they drifted and walked away from the Lord, and they came back. And that should encourage us to realize that it's a lifelong thing to influence other people to love God. And so while you're hearing this today, you want to be an influence on your children and grandchildren to love God. You want to be an influence on everybody you meet to know and to love God. You want to be an influence on kids who have no good influence in their life to love God. And the best advice that I can give is to take the advice of God that he gives through Moses. Henrietta Mears was a Bible teacher and a profoundly used of God Bible teacher. Henrietta Mears taught at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church in Pasadena, California. And in her Bible class, many, many men and women who became evangelical leaders in America went through her Bible class. And she's written some powerful things about God's Word. Henrietta Mears wrote this about Deuteronomy, and it ought to just kind of like whet your appetite. She said, you will come to appreciate the full force and magnetic beauty of Deuteronomy only when you read its pages. Nothing in literature matches the majesty of the eloquence of this book. Nothing in the Old Testament has any more powerful appeal for the spiritual life. No book in all of the Word of God pictures better the life that's lived according to God's will and the blessings showered upon the soul who comes into the richness and fullness of spiritual living along the rugged pathway of simple obedience. If you want to taste heaven on earth, then you want to become familiar with Deuteronomy. That's an interesting thing that she would say that. So you have these three discourses, and we're, and we're in the center here, uh, here in chapter 6, and, and we're, we're listening in on the simple things that Moses says if you want your, your, your nation to be strong, and if you want your family to be strong, then these are the things that you're to do. And now to review, we said, we said all the messages are hung on uh, two words each. The first message was, what do we do? We, do I have to go over this again? <laughs> Obviously I do. What, what did you say? Show them. If you want your kid to love God, show them how to love God. If you want your kid to do anything, show them how to do it, right? You don't just give them books on sailing. If you want them to sail, you take them sailing. You don't just give them books on how to, how to run a Ford 8N tractor. You get on the fender of the Ford 8N tractor. You show them how to do it. And then they learn that way, right? You show them. And then you speak. You teach and you talk. You tell them. And you tell them formally and informally. And, this, and you're going to see this as we read this text again. Just jump into the text. We'll review that. And I'll show you the new thing today. And I think it'll be an encouragement to you. I'm looking at Deuteronomy now, fifth book of the Bible, in chapter 6. Now, this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded me to teach you so that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your, your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them 
that it may go well with you and you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land that flows, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today will be, will be in your heart. That's the show them part. What's the first thing you do if you want to influence anybody to love God? Show them what it looks like. It's got to be true in you, all right? The second thing is, you, you, not only do you show them, you show them first, but you tell them. You talk about it. What you love, you talk about, right? Look at verse 6. These words that I command you today will be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So in, in other words, Moses is just saying that this talk about God's love for God and regard for the commandments of God it just should be something you do formally and informally all the time. If you want to influence people to love God, you just you talk about what you really love. So you show them, and then you what? You tell them. Now there's going to be one more, th- another thing here today, and that's this in verses 8 and 9. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's the text for today. And what's that telling us? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. If you've seen Orthodox Jewish people, sometimes you'll see they have like an Orthodox Jewish person may stop in the day and they would have a box between their eyes. And, or they, they, they were a phylactery or, or, or they would have a box on their hand. Or, or in an Orthodox Jewish home or in other Jewish homes, a tradition would be to have a mezuzah on the doorpost that you touch. These are, these are uh, actually little pieces of Scripture it's, not like a, it's, like a, it's like a very literal obedience to this. Though I don't believe that Moses was saying that, Moses wasn't primarily saying, I, I want these words to be written between your eyes or written on your hand or written on your doorpost. It was figurative. He, he, he was using these figures to say th- that your love for God and your regard for God's commandments should saturate every part of your life. Now, in the, on the Old Testament, it's interesting in Deuteronomy, he, he looked back in the first discourse, right? He looked up to God in God's law. In the second discourse, in the third, he looks ahead with promises and warnings. And if you want to walk with the Lord, it might be a good idea. If you want to refresh your walk with the Lord, to do the same thing. Look back. Like we t- spent some time confessing our sin today. The first step to God is to just acknowledge who you are and that you've broken his law, and that you're a sinner, and that you deserve his judgment. Just acknowledge that. Just admit that. Your spirit knows that's true. That's the first thing in looking back. Okay, Lord, I've made mistakes. And then looking at at God and his expression of who he is and his law, the beauty of his character and who he is, and his demands upon us, and then looking forward in the future. And the Old Testament is the primary, the primary message of the Old Testament, I think, is, is the holiness of God that God is holy, and, it, and he demands absolute holiness of us. This is not particularly good news at first, right? If God is absolutely holy, perfect, and without sin, and he demands absolute perfection from us, then we're all kind of in trouble, am I right? We're in serious trouble. But that is this, this, the grand you know, narrative of the Old Testament over and over again, just kind of drives that home, the precise commands of God the specific things he requires of us are not anything any human being could do. 
So in a kind of severe mercy, God shows us his great holiness and our lack of holiness. And what does that do? That prepares us for the message of the cross that's going to come in the New Testament. Does that make sense? He gets us thoroughly lost so that we can be thoroughly found when we get the message of the gospel. So the Old Testament emphasizes the holiness of God. But the Old Testament does not ignore the love of God, but it doesn't bring it up until Deuteronomy. So you don't really have a specific reference to God's love in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers, but you get specific references to God's love when you reach Deuteronomy. By the way, the Bible says in Romans, it says, we know that whatever things the law says, and this would be example of of parts of the Old Testament, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world would become silent or guilty before God. So remember this, if you want to go to God and you want to be close to God, can I say this in a nice way? Let your guilt silence you before God and realize his holy demands on you are demands you could never fulfill. And yet there is in that a hopeful but God has made a way for people who cannot be holy themselves to have his holiness, and that's the story of the gospel. But in Deuteronomy, notice this. In Deuteronomy, this is from, don't turn there, chapter 4, verse 37. Because he loved your fathers, he chose your seed because he loved. The Lord didn't set his love upon you he, uh, or choose you because you were more in number than any people. It says in Deuteronomy 7, or because you were the fewest, but because the Lord loved you. That's why. The Lord had a delight in your fathers, and he loved them. Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 5. The Lord turned the curse into a blessing because he loved you. And so over and over again in Deuteronomy, in a, in a, a series of books in the Old Testament that are emphasizing God's absolute holiness, there's the direct statement of his love toward us. And this is the heart of Deuteronomy because when you do like a word count, there are two words that appear over and over again in Deuteronomy. The word heart appears 49 times in 45 verses. The word heart. This is a theme then in Deuteronomy. This is a major thing. Heart. Stay with me with this. It's going to have really serious practical implications for you. Trust me on this. The word heart. The other word or or, uh, idea that appears over and over again 67 times is either obey or keep or observe which are saying the same thing, a similar thing, obey or keep or observe. So you track it with me? So in other words, themes in Deuteronomy, one is love and heart, and the other is obedience. In the New Testament, oh, they always go together, right? Jesus says, I, don't tell me you love me if you don't obey me. To, obey, to, to love his commands is to lean into his character and his beauty and who he is, and to recognize that you don't keep his commands, but through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can progressively keep his commands. It's the heart of the Bible. So in Deuteronomy, when you get to this passage, it's embedded in a book that's saying God is absolutely holy. He demands absolute holiness of you, and he wants you to love him. He wants to love you, and he wants you to love him. And if you really love him, it'll show in that you have a high regard for his commandments. Now, this is exactly what he's saying in the little part of the text that we've chosen today, remind them. Moses says when you go into the land, if you want your kids to have a lifelong love for God and you want your grandkids to have a lifelong love for God, you show them, you you tell them, and then you put reminders everywhere that God is always present in love and that our love for him demands obedience to his commands. You can't separate them. So the love we're talking about here isn't just kind of some kind of sentimental, like, you know, kind of feel good, separated from who God is and what he demands of us. It's not that way in the Bible ever. 
The scriptures are very clear about what God demands and what God supplies so that we can keep what he commands. So Moses is basically saying, big idea alert right here. Big idea alert. Like, wake up right now, write this down. You can tell your mom you heard the whole message. Moses is basically saying, profound spiritual influence is with those who have obedience that comes out of a heart of love. Obedience coming out of a heart of love. Not just love that has no obedience, that's not really love, and not just obedience that has no heart, but he's saying, if you want to have my, if you want your nation to be strong, you want your family to be strong, your goal is obedience to God that flows out of affection for God, that flows out of love for God, and that you see God in everything around you. And, you have, and so that's kind of the big idea here. And so you have, you know, the, the Jewish people there, they would have the tefillin in their hand, the phylacteries between their eyes, the, the, the mezuzah on their walls, not necessarily wrong things to do. But when Jesus saw that some of the people overemphasized these outward things in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5, he actually rebuked them for that. It's not just that you walk around with a Bible and you make a show of religious things. It's not that you have the little fish on your bumper sticker, right? It's that your heart is filled with love for God and your life has a corresponding obedience to the law of God. Is that the way your life is? This is what we're aiming at, and this is what we want to have, what we want to talk about, and what we want to remind people about if we want to have a profound spiritual influence on other people. And so I've broken this idea in a kind of application in four different things for you to see, and they're keyed on these words. Number one, deeds. Number two, desires. Number three, domestic life. And number four, your daily work. God's, your, your love for God and your regard for his word should show up in your deeds and in your desires and in your and home and away. Domestic life and work. Let's go over that, okay? Deeds, number one, what you do should show up in your love for God and your regard for the law of God. What you, you're, you, 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 this is why it says bind them upon your hands. The idea of what we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 you're familiar with this passage, right? Whatever you eat, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, finish. That means that somebody said you can drink orange juice to the glory of God. You can fish to the glory of God. You can't sin to the glory of God. Indirectly, you can. But you, what, whatever you do, you recognize God in it. This is, a, this is a secret of like, did you get any kind of ethereal sense of uh, transcendent godness in the service at any point today? Did you have any sense of being uplifted to God today in the service? I hope so. In a song or in a prayer or in a passage. I hope there was something like that. But what I'm trying to say is this, and what Moses is saying is this. If you want your kids to know and love God, you've got to teach them to see God in everything all the time. Are you tracking with me? That you see God on Monday, not just on Sunday. And in your school, right? Not just in your church, right? And it, it, every place that you go, it's saturated. That's the idea here when he says, you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You'll write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Everything and everywhere remind you of God. You have a God awareness. Everywhere you go, what you do, Isaiah 6, 3 says this beautifully. One cries to another, the angels, the seraphim, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then they say this because they can see it. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You don't just go to Bethel 
or any other good church to see the glory of God, though you should, and he manifests himself in a special way where God's believing people assemble. But you can see that in the moonset and in the sunrise and in the bird song, right? And in, a, in, in, in the smile of a little child, the color of a baby's eyes, in the love of your mate. These are things, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Teach your children that. Whole earth is filled with his glory. This, uh, the poets get this. Poets and saints get things, right? The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning has a little poem, and part of it goes like this. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush is afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes, like right in holy reverence. The rest just sit around, and they pluck blueberries. Yeah. Can we read that again? That was good, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. I'll read it again. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush is afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Everyone else just sits around plucking blueberries. There's an old legend, don't know if it's true, doesn't have to be because it's a good story, about, about how you become an Indian brave, right? This is what they said. They said that, that they would take the boy when he was, uh, when he, it was time for him to become a brave, and they would say, you need to be out in the desert, you know, all night alone, and if you make it all night alone out in the desert, in the morning, you will be a brave. And so then the boy would go out in the cold night air of the desert and he would hear, you know, the coyotes howling and he would hear all kinds of things he didn't know it would be like pitch black and would be out there in the darkness and time would go by and he would be almost afraid, like, should I come in? And then finally the sun would climb up over the horizon in the morning and when the sun lightened the world, he realized that standing not very far away was his own father who had been there all night. Listen to me. No matter how dark your world is, or no matter how hard things get, no matter how alone you feel, or how silent God seems, he's always there. That's what we want to learn, and that's what we want to teach our children, that they would know that there is an ever-present God that's in our life, even in the heartaches of our life, even in the trials of our life, that he's ever-working and always good and kind, and he's benevolent. And then there are the desires, what we want, you know, like the idea between our eyes, what we see or what we desire, uh, the love of our God should, and our regard for God's law should be evident in what we want and in what we value, what we put our eyes upon. I, I know often you find people who have kind of filled their life with like religious stuff, but they're not particularly nice or godly or commendable. You know, like I've, I've met preachers who scream and holler and, and thump their Bibles, but they're kind of mean and rude and, and they're ugly with their family. That ain't good. That's not what we're talking about. We've had, you've seen people that kind of hang all kinds of banners on their life, and yet their hearts are, are really empty of genuine affection for God, love for God. I can tell you a little thing I noticed today, and I probably shouldn't mention it, but that rarely stops me. So we're in our Sunday school. We're in our Sunday school today, and at the end of our Sunday school, there's all kinds of noise. It sounds like the building is going to come apart like maybe there's a bombing raid or and we all looked at each other like what's that and we realized the children had gotten out of their Sunday school classes and they had gone into the gym and they're just shooting basketballs and and it just it does sound kind of like you know Berlin during World War II or whatever and Dresden and 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 here's what I noticed nobody went out and yelled at the kids and I'm like I love this church I love this church because people get it here they like kids. They love kids. We can put up a little noise. Amen? Amen. 
right? Wouldn't it be sad if the church was silent of the voices of babies and children and they all went away and never came back? How sad would that be, right? This is a place of not just like, don't run in the church, stop doing that. If it's fun, it must be sin. This is a place where, no, this is the highest way. This is the, sometimes sin is fun, let's be honest, okay? But, but overall, right, this is the highest life. It's the life that it's following Jesus. And, and, and there are many examples. Because I knew I would have an abbreviated amount of time today, I have put together a little blog post on kenpierpunt.com. You can go there and you can see a whole bunch of suggestions of the kinds of things that you can do to saturate your home with evidence of your love for God and your high regard for his word. But one just pops in my mind. My parents, what I do, have done all my life, what I call a toilet tank edification. If you go to my parents' little home over there in south of Litchfield, you'll see that there's evidence in every room of people who love God. And it isn't just there for show. It's because people live there who love God, right? uh, This morning, one of our elders, Eddie Beasley, sorry, Eddie, you get thrown under the bus here. Um, He was over there in the choir, and he said, I think he said, sorry, I'm a little late. I was the waffle king this morning. And that warmed my heart. He had grandkids over, and instead of just Mr. Important Elder running off early to church, he got out the, the waffles and he made, you know, waffles. for That's what we're talking about, see? And so can you imagine little grandkids in the years to come going, yeah, my grandpa, he would sing on Sunday, and he would make waffles because it was his favorite day, and then we would go off to worship his God. Likely that that's going to leave a good taste in the mouth of his kids for God because he's saturated because it included waffles. Yeah, he saturated his life with his evidence of his love for God. You mezuzah your whole life. Remember the, the, the Notre Dame people? You know, the evil Notre Dame people? Yeah, you know, they play football, and they got the little sign, the wicked and evil Notre Dame people. I'm kidding, right? And they got the sign, right? And what does it say? Come on, you know this. What's the sign say? Some of you know this. No, just, are there, it, it, come on, Kai, you know this? What does it say? The Huh? Play like a champion today, right? And they hit the sign, right? That's the, that's the exact thing. When they go out of the locker room, they reach up, they hit the sign, they say, play like a champion today. They hope they're not playing U of M because, you know, they get beat. Hey, play like a champion today, right? It's like they, they remember who they are. That's what ought to be in your house. It's like, man, these are, this, is a, this is a house full of sinners who are desperately following Jesus. And we're going to be reminded that every time we go out in that world and what we do, so our deeds our desires, our domestic life. You know, one more thing about Billy Graham. You know what his kids said about him? I think almost all of them said this, or a variation on this. You know what they said? They said this. They said, he was the same at home as what you saw in public. Do you notice that? That's what you want. I mean, you want them both to be good. You don't just want to be bad in public and bad at home. Yeah, see what I'm saying? You want to be, if you're (laughs) Yeah, think about that tomorrow, that'll, about noon, you'll, you'll get that joke. Uh, but but he's the same at home, same at home, and that's what they said about him. He's the same at, at home as he was when he was out in public as a, as a public minister. And this is what this passage is saying. You shall bind them on the sign, as a sign on your hand, like frontlets between your eyes. You write them on the doorposts of your house, like when you're going in, and on your gates, like when you're going out. Fred Craddock is a favorite guy of mine. He's with the Lord now, but if he... He said when he was a boy, his mother used to send him out to get this stubborn red mule that would always wander off, and he always hated going after this red mule because the red mule, the stubborn thing, would always go up and behind the back pasture, and he would wander into an old graveyard, and Fred was always 
scared in the graveyard. And when we'd go up in the graveyard, you remember when he visited there with his family, and his family said to him, Fred, whenever you come up in the graveyard, don't step on the graves. That's sacred ground. You don't walk on other people's graves. That's sacred ground. And Fred said when he would go up there after the red mule that would wander off into the graveyard, he would always look down the ground, and he never could figure out where the graves were. So he didn't know if he was stepping on sacred ground. And so one day he came back to his very wise mother, and he said to her, how do I know when I'm on the sacred ground? And then she said something to him he never forgot. It's probably safe to assume it's all sacred ground. And that's what you want to do when you leave this place, and you go do whatever you do tomorrow. You want to look at it and realize God is here. This is sacred ground. And that's what you want to show your children, and that's what you want to teach your children. My grandfather, uh, my mother's dad, Bud Shipley, had this crazy thing he would always do. He had, but speaking of Notre Dame, he actually worked at Notre Dame. And he had a little business on the side called the dot, Bud's Dial Indicator Service. Back when boilers always had these little dials on them, and he would, he would fix those and make a little bit of money on the side. And he had a little card he would give people, and it would have these letters on it, R-W-Y-A, R-W-Y-A. I have some of his old Bibles, and every once in a while, if you're looking through his Bible, you'll see those little letters, R-W-Y-A. If he write you a letter, sometimes he would put R-W-Y-A in the letter. He didn't say much. He was very quiet. Grandma did enough talking for, for him and for her too. But when you would leave their little house on Otten Road in South Bend, Indiana, he would speak, and he would say, well, let's pray. And then we would get in a circle, and we would hold hands. And then my grandpa would pray. And then he would say, remember whose you are, R-W-Y-A. He had heard a preacher one time say, remember whose you are. It had a beautiful dual significance to it. It'd be like saying, when you get out there in that world, don't forget, you come from our people, our family. We love you. But if you knew my grandpa, you knew that he meant something bigger than that. He always wanted you to remember you belong to the Lord. That's what you want to embed in the hearts of the people that you want to influence spiritually. That wherever they go, and no matter how hard things are, or no matter how dark things are, or no matter what mistakes they've made, that God is ever-present. He's there in power, in beauty, and He'll empower you to live a holy life through his salvation through Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. He's present in everything. Remember whose you are. Would you stand with me? I want to dismiss you in prayer. I want to ask those of you that are on the prayer team to come forward right now, because what we're going to do is we're going to dismiss in prayer, and then some of you may want to have prayer. You want to have somebody pray with you, and uh, then you can come forward, and folks that will pray with you here and the rest of you, please don't run away. Stay around and have some fellowship with us. I talk really fast so that you can have time to have some fellowship today. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, it's been such a blessing, such a happy thing to be in, our, in this service today and to hear the bells ringing and, and the, the drums playing and the horn and, and the piano and the organ and the voices of saints and, and, and worshipers and to be inspired and encouraged. It's, it, we know it's a holy place, but I pray that you'd help us to see that every place in our life is a holy place and help us to influence our children and our grandchildren and others to see that the whole world is filled with his glory. Amen.